0: You're listening to So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast about the world of writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm your co-host and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and resources and a wonderfully supportive writing community. I'm here without my usual co-host, the very talented A.L. Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, because we're doing an in-between episode, where I'm going to treat you to a story session, just you, me and our guest author of the week. This is where you hear the first chapter of a book that we recommend, usually read by the author, along with some insights into their writing life. So think of it as having your own private reading delivered straight to your ears. We're bringing the literary salon to you so you don't even have to leave the house. This week I've chosen The Dying Diplomats Club by Matthew Benz. Australian listeners will know Matthew as a journalist who is currently editor-at-large with the Daily Telegraph. He's published several non-fiction books like Fixed, which dives into the underbelly of the horse racing industry in Australia, and The Men Who Killed Qantas. But this is his first foray into fiction, and it's a wild ride, as you'll hear in his introduction... Matthew had a lot of fun writing this book, and readers are going to have a lot of fun reading it. It's a classic whodunit, but set in the Prime Minister's house, with ample amounts of alcohol. So here is Matthew Benz reading from his new novel, The Dying Diplomats Club.
1: Hello, I'm Matthew Benz, and I'm the author of The Dying Diplomats Club. Valerie asked me to record the answers to some questions before I narrate the first chapter. So here goes. Question one, what inspired me to write this story? Well, this story, this book was born out of a daily serial that ran through COVID. I had the idea as, as advertising dropped away and everyone was locked down at the start that what we really wanted was a serial, but we couldn't just run a, a daily serial from before because it wasn't relevant. So I had the idea of, of a, a couple in lockdown. He's a detective. He and his wife witness a murder and they start to solve the murder. I knocked up the first 250 words, sent them into the editor of the section, Louise Roberts, and she um, came back to me and said, that's great. Benzie, we love it. Uh, Can I have the next one by um, tomorrow? Because it's in the paper in the morning. So... um, From that point on, and that's been characterised by the book and the serial, it's basically been the same as falling off a building, a very tall building with a fog underneath. You can't see where you're going to land, but so far, so good. So um, the chief of staff of the newspaper rang me the next morning and said, Wow, I love that. The first episode ends on a scream. Who's the killer? And I said to her, Well, I don't even know who's dead yet. So she felt that I should name a character after... Her name is Rose. So I called the first victim in in the serial Rose, only to realise four or five days later that I'd inadvertently killed off my mother-in-law as well, because her name is Rose. That's beside the point. From the serial, which was very, very popular, came the idea for the Dying Diplomats Club, the book. HarperCollins saw how popular it was, thought it was a great idea. Let's do a book. And um, I think that really... Um, leads me to question three. So I'll jump ahead. What was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? The most challenging aspect of writing this book was that um, any ideas I had of putting on a velvet smoking jacket and retiring to my country estate to to ponder great things and, and write carefully were dismissed when they said, yes, this is great. You've got 10, possibly 12 weeks to write it in. So much the same as the serial where I was dashing along and making up as I go along, exactly that. I just had to get on with it. So that brings me to, can you describe your writing process? My writing process is, in this particular instance, and I've written a lot of non-fiction books, same thing, giant sheet of butcher's paper up on the wall, all the characters, all the plot, everything there. And as it as it unfolds and and Leaps and turns and twists appear. Arrows go left and right. And it, it ends up looking like a giant Tetris puzzle. But it's the key because I find as I write that you start to forget who's where and where they are and so on. And you can look at that. And there's a, it's a mind map of the book on the wall. As far as actually having it planned out, I started to work out the full plot. And then I realized that actually the characters come to life themselves and they drive the book in directions that I hadn't expected. Characters that I at the outset thought well that's going to be a, a very developed character who's going to play a long part gets bumped off very early because for, for whatever reason it just happens to fit the way it flows. So I tend to um, follow my jumping off the tall building analogy and um So far, so good. And hopefully we get to the end and hopefully you'll read the book and you'll think, I can see where he's going and, and it's amazing he got there. So question four, what was the most rewarding aspect of writing this book? The most rewarding aspect of it is that it's fun. I hope that the readers get as much enjoyment and as many laughs out of reading this book as I got out of writing it. For me, the whole purpose was to entertain. It began with these two characters in lockdown and the fun between them and the and the funny things that happened. It made me laugh. And um, from the feedback I got from people who read it in the newspaper, it made them laugh. And at a time when laughs are few and far between, to me, that was what I wanted to do. And my reward is if... People tell me when they've read it that they've had a good belly laugh and a good chuckle, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, And I should also say that, like many of the other writers on there, it's been a lifelong ambition of mine to write fiction, and this book finally did it. I've I've written many non-fiction books, but this one gave me the most satisfaction because... I made it up. It's fiction. i would wanted to do this for my whole life. And this book has done it. So I really hope that people read it and get as much pleasure from it as I got in writing it. And uh, the final question is, what are my top three tips to aspiring writers? My top three tips are all basically the same thing. And that is, do the writing. Start writing. Don't wait. I off, I thought for a long time. Oh, you know, I, I had to have a shack on the beach, had to be the right the right ambiance and everything for me to write. In actual fact, I ended up writing this book on the kitchen bench. When it's there, when the when the 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 creative juices are flowing, it doesn't matter where you are. And I think there's so much procrastination in writers. I know I wasted years you know, getting the right pen, getting the right typewriter, getting the right computer, getting the lovely leather-bound journal, all of that stuff. It's rubbish. As Jilly Cooper said, what gets books written is putting your bum on the seat, and you sit down, and you sit there, and you start typing. It doesn't matter what you type. Just start, get writing, and then it happens. Inspiration flows. As I said earlier, the characters... Come alive and and with them they're, they're, a, they're a whole they're a whole creation in themselves and they drive and generate the creative juices. And once you start, you do more and you can't stop. So that's my top three tips. Start writing, get writing, do it now. Okay, and on that point, let me narrate the first chapter of The Dying Diplomats Club. Chapter one. An unexpected invitation. The red crowding the edges of Detective Nick Moore's vision gradually turned to black as the hands on his throat pressed more insistently against his windpipe, cutting the flow of oxygen to his brain. It was no good. As unconsciousness threatened, he desperately fought the hands away and took a deep, ragged breath. Oh, darling, we almost had it that time, said La Contessa, his high-born Italian wife. It's only the collar button to go and this dress shirt will fit perfectly. I have always admired your optimism, my Venetian visionary, he gasped, but this dress shirt last fitted properly on our wedding day and it would be too implied to specify the time since in actual years. But Nicky, you look so handsome in this shirt rather than that old fuddy-duddy one you normally wear. That old fuddy-duddy one, as you so disparagingly, disparagingly call it, is very comfortable, said Nick, his tone registering his injured pride. Whereas this one... Makes me feel like an English sausage squeezed into a Cipollata's skin. Oh well, have it your own way. It's a very special occasion and I really wanted you to look your best. Well... If you think it's such a good idea, why don't you see if you can squeeze into your old wed... The rest of Nick's sentence was fortuitously interrupted by Baxter, their intrepid beagle, who suddenly jumped off his mint-covered gel pod on the sofa in the garden and hurtled to the front door in a whirl of slipping paws and wild yelping. This will be my delivery from Netta Porter, said La, La Contessa delightedly, skipping lightly to sign the driver's paperwork. She returned to bearing the cardboard equivalent of the leaning tower of pizza. Pisa. "'Now, what was that you were saying, darling?' she said, as the boxes crashed onto the pavers in the back garden. "'Something about me squeezing into something?' "'Hmm, oh no, nothing important,' said Nick, thankfully patting Baxter's head and helping to pick up the boxes and stack them on the glass-topped outdoor coffee table. "'I was just hoping you would have a lovely figure-hugging number in those boxes.' ''Me too,'' La Candessa said excitedly, ripping open the first one and skimming the handwritten note before pulling out a shimmering silver-beaded dress and holding it against her body for Nick to admire. ''You boys are so lucky. You just keep wearing the same old dinner suit, whereas we have to keep buying new clothes. Admittedly,'' she continued, shrugging out of her active leisure wear and wriggling into the silver dress, ''you did have to buy another one because the original became, shall we say, a little snug.'' It's funny how that only happens to boys, said Nick, casting a worried glance at the windows of Turner Tower's opposite to see if La impromptu burlesque performance was being overlooked. I know, said La It's the elastine in girls' clothing. It's well known it shrinks over time, meaning you simply cannot fit into your old dresses. All my old girlfriends tell me it's the same with them. Nick nodded sagely and wisely chose to keep his counsel on that point. Instead, he Busied himself by heading over to the outdoor bar fridge to retrieve two ice cold cocktail glasses from the top shelf. They frosted instantly in the warm summer afternoon air. With practice ease, Nick rattled ice into a stainless steel cocktail shaker, added three measures of gin, one of vodka, and half of lilette and shook vigorously. He poured the frosty martini into the glasses and ran the rind of a lemon around the rim for his w- of his wife's glass before dropping the lemon slice in and handing the glass to her. Are you sure we should be drinking this before we go out tonight, she asked, taking a long and appreciative sip before standing it on the table and ripping at the packaging of the next box. Absolutely, my Milano marvel, said Nick. Just what we need to get the motors running. And I have to say that you've never looked lovelier than over the rim of a martini glass in your undies in the back garden. La Contessa's cheeks coloured slightly, and she gave him a coquettish look from under long curled eyelashes that immediately took Nick's thoughts away from the fashion issues at hand. I know that look, Nick Moore, and we don't have time for any of that nonsense. I have to find a dress for this evening. After all, we haven't been given very much warning. No. It's all rather unexpected, said Nick, regretfully sett- settling back onto the sofa after. Sl- slipping into his larger, more comfortable shirt, and watching as his wife squeezed into a blue velvet dress with a daring heel-to-thigh split. Still no idea what prompted it. No, same as you. I've heard nothing more. The first I knew of it was when the invitation dropped into the letterbox yesterday morning. Nick picked up the embossed invitation and thoughtfully turned it in his fingers. It was certainly unusual to receive an invitation from Kirribilli House at short notice. In fact. It was unusual to receive an invitation from Kiriboli House, full stop. They had never been there, despite La Contessa's long-standing friendship with Patricia Monaro, the wife of Prime Minister Robert Monaro. It had never caused them any extra thought. Contact with Patricia and Robert had dropped away as his political career took flight. That was just par for the course, and they assumed it would pick up again when politics took a back seat. That made it even more surprising to receive the invitation. Perhaps they were being drafted in to make up the numbers, mused Nick, though that seemed unlikely. Personally, I would have thought parties at Kirribilli House would have been organised and booked out months ago, said La Contessa, breaking into his thoughts. Especially on New Year's Eve, said Nick. Funny they would pick such an important night to suddenly squeeze us in after such a long break in the acquaintance. Speaking of squeezing us in, can you help me with the zip on this one, said La Contessa, turning her back as Nick... "'tug manfully at the proffered zipper. "'I think they may have got the sizing wrong on the box.' "'Undoubtedly,' agreed Nick, absent mindedly, "'still pondering the invitation. "'Robert Monaro was flying high in the polls "'and widely regarded by the electorate "'as an all-round good bloke, "'which, in Nick's long experience of the Prime Minister, "'was a pretty good assessment. "'Being a war hero did not hurt either.' He had served with the Special Air Service Regiment in Iraq before the regiment's name was tarnished by later events in Afghanistan and had been awarded for his service. Looking good in uniform was a winner with the voters. Why do you think Rob and Patricia suddenly want to catch up with you and your retired policeman husband? We're hardly useful on the political front. I prefer to describe you to my friends as arresting detectives said La Contessa and I have absolutely no idea why the sudden invite at short notice. "'Perhaps they remember your penchant for fireworks,' said Nick, prompting a puzzled and potentially dangerous look from his wife. "'I mean, it's New Year's Eve, and "'Curabilly House has the most amazing view of the fireworks, "'right on the harbour, opposite the Opera House, "'and virtually underneath the harbour bridge. "'It would be amazing.' "'Yes, but it still seems curious. "'The rest of her sentence was interrupted "'by a knocking on the wooden back gate. "'Uncharacteristically, Baxter did not bark, "'but instead stood by the fence, happily wagging his tail.' La Contessa urgently pulled up the bodice of the red satin gown she was now trying on, as Nick quickly stood up and strode over to the gate, throwing it open to reveal the portly form of their old friend Detective Inspector Dave Cleaver and his even chubbier bulldog Brian. "'Happy almost New Year,' he said, stepping into the garden as Baxter and Brian acquainted themselves with each other's bottoms. "'Is that one of your legendary martinis I see there on the table? Don't mind if I do.' What plans do you and Brian have for this evening, asked Nick, rattling fresh ice into the cocktail shaker. Nothing too exciting, said Cleaver, the British accent still present despite 30 years of living in Australia. A quiet night in with my 12-year-old. Oh, how lovely. Is that your nephew Glenn you talk so much about, you know? Glenn Fidditch, asked La Contessa. The very one, said Cleaver, casting a look at Nick who discreetly shook his head. And where might you be off, off to in that simply stunning red dress. Do you like it, asked La Contessa, performing a delighted pirouette that lifted the dress in a flowing swirl to reveal a flash of her long legs. Well, say something. Both men stared, slack-jawed, transfixed. Nick was the first to recover. That is, well, it's, I mean, really a knockout, said Cleaver. Exactly, said Nick. That's the one to wear tonight. And yes, so where are you going, asked Cleaver, recovering and taking a sip of his martini going to Kirribilli House what is described as an intimate dinner with the Prime Minister and a few very close friends, said La Contessa. Of course you are, Cleaver laughed. No, really, where are you going? You know, my wife is incapable of those kinds of extravagant jests, said Nick. It's true. Really? So how do you know the PM and his wife? I went to university with Patricia, said La Contessa. In fact, I was there when they met. Was that when he was in the army, asked Cleaver? Yes, he was just a captain, Patricia. Had a thing for men in uniform. Everyone used to call her Duntroon, but I never understood why. I imagine that's because most of the army went through Duntroon at some stage, said Nick. La Contessa gave him a reproving glare. Is it safe to say that she had more than one military bow? Oh yes, quite a few at the same time as I remember, said La Contessa. Of course, poor old Robert had no idea what was going on. He was really sweet and would be turning up at our share house with flowers and in his best uniform, brass buttons all polished and sparkly. He was such a goody-goody. That's how he got his nickname. What nickname? asked Cleaver. Minor Monaro? I thought he got that during his time as treasurer because he only ever passed on minor tax cuts. No, silly, said contessa We used to call him Scout because he was like the last boy scout, always doing the right thing. So when did they get married? asked Cleaver. Didn't he serve in Iraq in the Gulf War? I thought he was special forces or something. Yes, he popped the question after he got his posting to Iraq and they married in a real hurry. It was a very quick and make-do, said La Contessa. In fact, the proposal had taken many by surprise at the time. Monaro had certainly not been considered the front-runner for Patricia's hand. His best friend was, a, and a fellow Special Forces operative clearly had won her affections more completely than anyone else, but, no, but Monaro had got there first with the question. To everyone's surprise, she accepted, leaving Monaro's friend and rival heartbroken and bereft as the couple swept into a whirlwind marriage i barely had time to buy a decent dress i remember it was ivory and i was worried i might overshadow the bride reminisced luck and Tessa fondly we had the reception in the garden of the house and the next day ran off to battle very romantic really and did she wait loyally and faithfully for him asked cleaver ''Yes, well, in our own fashion, more loyal than faithful, really,'' said La Contessa. ''I do remember the odd visitor of military rank paying house calls.'' ''Hmm,'' said Nick, ''and now, after all these years, ''we suddenly get an invite to spend New Year's Eve with them at Kirribilli House.'' ''Have you kept in touch?'' asked Cleaver?'' ''Oh, yes,'' said La Contessa. ''Not really intimately, but we have kept in contact ''and caught up for the occasional dinner and such like.'' Robert adores Nicky, but since he became Prime Minister, has obviously been a bit busy for social engagements. Which is why this is such a surprise, said Nick, as La Contessa started to rip open the last of the packages at the bottom of the pile. Do you really need to open that one? I think the red dress will be just perfect. Oh, this is not for me, said La Contessa, pulling out a tiny dinner suit with a black velvet bow tie already attached. I'll never fit into that, said Nick. It's not for you, darling, she responded with surprise. This is for Baxter. He can't turn up at the Prime Minister's residence in just a collar, and it is black tie. Of course, said Nick in astonishment. We're taking the dog. Naturally, darling. We couldn't leave Baxter at home on New Year's Eve with all the pyrotechnical bangs and things. I called up Patricia and and said it would not be a problem. Nick shook his head. Another martini, Detective Inspector, he asked. I think I'd better, said Cleaver. Trying to smother his smirk. "'Let me know what time you're heading over, "'and I'll give all three of you a lift.' "'The black heavy bag shook with the punches "'as the cut man threw combinations of punches. "'The sinews of his arms stood out like cables "'as he delivered the blows with resounding thuds. "'His body, the hair shaved close to match his head, "'glistened with sweat, "'and droplets hit the concrete floor of the basement garage "'as he pummeled the bag, suspended on a chain "'from a beam in the ceiling. "'Another nine-blow combination?' He dropped his black-gloved hands and pivoted on the ball of his right foot to bring his extended left leg in a sweeping arc that connected at optimal velocity with the bag. His heel left a solid dent in the vinyl. The man followed the kick with a series of kicks and blows that were an amalgam of jiu-jitsu, the Japanese martial art created by the samurai, and Krav Maga, the self-defence fighting system developed for the Israeli defence forces. His moves were at once fluid, controlled and explosive. After another five minutes, he stopped, took off the gloves and dropped to the concrete floor for three repetitions of 30 push-ups before going into a series of warm-down exercises and stretches. Eventually, he stretched his arms above his head, grabbed a small white gym towel and wiped his face. Along the wall of the basement ran a long workbench with tools and a vise. Hanging a hoax above it were a number of guns ranging in size and velocity from Heckler and cock automatic pistols to an Australian Army issue Accuracy International SR-98 sniper rifle and incongruously, a brace of British Purdy shotguns. A laptop computer sat in the middle of the bench, the screensaver randomly bobbing across it. The man walked over, tapped the keyboard, and studied the grid of faces that appeared on the screen. Many were familiar from nightly news bulletins and newspaper reports on politics and business. He had already committed them to memory, but thorough preparation had been drilled into him. The man took a last look and then closed the laptop. It was time. I hope you enjoyed the start of The Dying Diplomats Club.
0: To keep reading more about Nick, La Contessa, and of course the gorgeous Beagle Backstart, pick up your copy of The Dying Diplomats Club by Matthew Benz from bookstores and online retailers. It's out now with HarperCollins Australia. And if you'd love to embark on your own creative writing journey, our course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect place to start. That's what best-selling author Sarah Bailey did before going on to publish her stunning debut novel, The Dark Lake. She has since published several more thrillers. Here's her story.
2: My name's Sarah Bailey. Um, I've got a debut novel through Alan and Unwin out at the moment. It's called The Dark Lake. It's a crime thriller. I was working in advertising at the time and I was working at a great company and had a really sort of good career, but I just had this burning desire to write all the time. I'd heard really good things about the Australian Writers' Centre's course. Um, the reviews were always really positive and people always sort of providing really good feedback on social media, so um, I just thought that was a really good place for me to start. I found Nicole Hayes, the tutor that I had in the course that I did through the Australian Writer Centre, really inspiring. Um, really down-to-earth um, teaching style, but just a really great way of um, pulling together some of the writing skills that she's picked up over the years. She had such a passion for narrative and structure, um, and being a published author, she had some some really practical um, advice and knowledge to share as well. The process for me was just setting my own deadlines, which was something that was covered off in the Australian Writer Centre's course as well. Went, this is how many words I'd like to have by these different points along the year and then I um, just worked towards getting the words down. And then I sort of um, approached agents and then the agents helped me approach publishers. In the end when Alan and Unwin decided to publish the novel and um, that was all confirmed, it was, it was amazing. It was just such an amazing um, experience to go through and I felt really fortunate, um, but also really proud because it had obviously been you know, a really hard, um, hard sort of journey to get there. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre, I discovered that writing was something that was really, really important to me. And then of course, you know, through meeting the people and the tutor that I had, I also picked up a lot of really invaluable skills as well. I think it really just set me off on the right path. Um, and then since then, obviously, so much has happened in my world in terms of writing that I really do see it as the first step um, that, I, that I took along that path. It's amazing, I've, I feel very, very fortunate to be in the position where that's, that's my current life. So I think that was, a, that was hugely important um, in terms of getting, getting started. Definitely anyone who's interested in writing and sort of taking a, a more serious step toward that as a career or even just a, a more specific hobby, I think the Australian Writer Centre's courses are really worthwhile. I think it's just, it's always nice to be um, in an environment where people are passionate about what you're passionate about. Um, and I think that the, um, the skills and the information that you get from, from courses like that just, just help you sort of really focus. For me, the creative writing course was was a great starting point. I think it just made me um, rediscover my love for writing at a basic level all over again. Um, so I think that I've definitely spoken to other friends and have suggested that they give it a shot.
0: If you'd like to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash writing. Thanks for listening to Story Sessions of So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find more details about the podcast and a wealth of writing resources and courses at writerscentre.com.au. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre. Do connect with us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram at WriterCentreau. And, of course, connect with us personally in our free podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. Alice and I will be back to our regular programming in the next episode. Thanks for listening and I look forward to chatting to you again next time.